This week's episode of A Cure for Baldness is proudly brought to you by Fit Services. Fit Services are a leading provider of cleaning and maintenance services throughout the hospitality, strata, commercial and retail sectors. With their dedicated team of cleaners, tradespeople and facilities management staff, Fit Services are dedicated to creating and maintaining clean, healthy and safe environments that are fit for your business. Contact Fit Services at 1300 011 011 or email fitservices.com.au. Coming to you live from Radio Hub Studios, it's a cure for boldness. Now here's your host, Silky and Bush. Well, listeners, this is the one we've been waiting for, Silky. This is the big show. This gentleman I'm so proud to call a very good friend of mine and, and of course, yours. But, uh, mate, he has uh, a great story to tell, and we're about to hear this. I'm so excited. He started out very humble beginnings, like all of our guests on A Cure for Baldness. And I can certainly say to you that, mate, he has done so many things. He's a builder. He's a TV host. He's a philanthropist. He's a cancer survivor. He sails the Mediterranean Ocean. Uh, you know, he's a great skier. There's not much he can't do. And I tell you what, for a bloke on the other side of the table, if I look like that when I'm just in my 50s, I, I'm going to, that, that, that's it. Well, Bush, while we were doing our research, I think um, the best analogy you came up with is uh, Jan Michael Vincent. Yeah, he does look a little bit like Jan Michael Vincent, but you know what? He looks a bit better than Jan. Jan didn't come up too good and big went at the end. Great at the start. Ladies and <laughs> would you please welcome to uh, A Cure for Baldness, Barry Dubois. Guys, thanks very much for having me here. Thanks for coming in, Buzz. I'm going to jump straight into a story there. Jan Michael Vincent, I, I, I'm happy to admit when I was a young bloke, I did look a little like Jan Michael Vincent. I'm in Los Angeles in 1989. Uh, I'm there. I believe it or not, I was staying with a, an old girlfriend and her, she was living with the producers of the mutant Ninja Turtles. So it was 88. It was, it was in that launch. Now we'd been to a party after the, the launch of the Ninja Turtles and I'm in, uh, Santa Monica walking down the street with a group of people and who was there walking the other direction, but a very, very off his face, Gary Boozy. Ah, yes, who Leroy was, the Massacre. Who was sure yeah, I was Jan Michael Vincent and wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> and this was headlock, cuddles, kissing, let's party all night. And I'm trying to convince him with a very Australian accent that I am not Jan Michael Vincent. <laughs> we better add to the, all, all the people who are going to listen to this podcast that for those who don't know Jan Michael Vincent, he's a famous actor, but he's probably most famous for his role as Matt. In uh, the Matt surfing Johnson. classic, Big Wednesday. Yeah, that he is, is. That is Matt Johnson. And I've got to tell you, Baz, I, I probably met you about 20 years ago. When I first met you, I thought, my God, is that Matt Johnson? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Baz, you know, Cure for Baldness is a show where we talk about the story so far. You know, there's so much uh, so much experience you've had in your life, and it's so interesting for, uh, you know, people to listen to. And we've had some great guests, but, mate, I'm, I'm particularly excited about this one because, you know, you've just got some amazing – you're an amazing storyteller – but you've got some amazing experiences. I appreciate you say that. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. Now, humble beginnings. Let's talk about where it all started for, for Barry Dubois. Yeah, for me, it was uh, in a beautiful family home, a, a little two-bedroom fibro place on a six-lane six lane road called Newbridge Road out uh, near Milpera, Liverpool. Uh, it was just near Dutchie's Tattoo Parlour. <laughs> and uh, it was just there in the – you eastern suburbs mobs wouldn't know this, but, but out there it floods occasionally. And where we live was uh, in the flood area. So it was a – 
It wasn't the prettiest house to look at, but uh, by far I have uh, amazing, beautiful memories of that place. There's no doubt about it. And we're going to touch on it later on. We talk about the family, but uh, your family is very important to you and that experience sort of shaped your, I suppose, your future success, how you were brought up, you know, your closeness with your, you know, your family and your, and your siblings and your, or your brother. And, you know, it's just an amazing part of your life. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, my dad was never one for um, flashy stuff. He's... he's his life was his family and uh, I never knew it back then. And, and these are the things we learn in hindsight is that we didn't have a brick house. We had a fibro house. We were the only people that had a fibro house. Everybody else had a brick house and I was really jealous of them. And the, the thing is though, my dad insisted on having the school holidays off with us. He'd work three jobs while we were at school. So he could have the whole school holidays off. His family was everything. And, uh, and you know, you wouldn't take a backward step to anybody, that's for sure. And uh, so I learned a lot about that as well. But he, um, he instilled in us that family was everything. And that um, it, this is a, another interesting story. My whole life, my old man had said to me, uh, you're a Dubois, you're the best at everything. And it wasn't until I was about 14 that I realised he was just saying that. Because I'd go to athletics carnival, I'd win everything. But I think the psyche in that was the fact that I thought I was supposed to win everything. Yeah. Do you understand what I mean? So you went in with the confidence he, that he you're going to win. Self-confidence. And these days I talk to a lot of kids uh, at school and, um, and I tell them that I was very lucky through that, through that is that I never experienced peer pressure as a kid. So we had the, the you know, what was seen as the, the dumpy house and, uh, and we didn't seem to have a lot of um, material things, but everybody wanted to hang at our place. And uh, my mum always had the soup on. And uh, even when we were young, young men, everybody used to pile back to my place after, after we'd come into the cock and bull or wherever <laughs> it was. <laughs> come into the East, steal our women and go back to the West. <laughs> you said it, not me. Hey, does, the surname Dubois, yeah. you know, have you ever done any research on, on your traditional family heritage? Yeah, my word. It's an interesting story. My grandfather, who I didn't know, uh, he died when my dad was seven. He was a, a, a Frenchman that came out here with, uh, with the big fashion uh, houses and he was a wool classer. So he came out to Boy, not a huge only, job back in the day. Yeah, huge. Massive, so wasn't it? We had the, back in those days, I'm sure it's much the same now, but we had the best merino wool in the world. And he came out from France to, to select that wool uh, to be part of the fashion garments of uh, the early 30s, I think it was. Yeah. We, we you know, got a good friend of ours, uh, Migastini, who runs a property in Orange, and his old man's obviously, uh, you know, runs lots of sheep and uh, and lambs. Wool classing, his grandfather's a wool classer. And to be a wool classer... Oh, it was it, like a university. It was, yeah. It, yeah, it's like a winemaker. So the importance is... And for a fashion house, yeah. you know, it's like, I suppose, the modern day, uh, you know, Jennifer Hawkins or me can go, you're that important. And, and they used to earn giant money. Giant money, but um, unfortunately for, for my grandfather, my, my grandmother was in hospital having uh, my dad's brother, uh, youngest brother, yep. and grandfather got tuberculosis and died in that wow. period. So uh, yeah, that, that happened back in those days they were, had a lot more constitution back in those days than we do now that's for sure oh god yeah baz uh, you know growing up on the the uh, you know i suppose the southwest of sydney but very humble beginnings you become a builder you decided to become a builder what steered you towards that i mean you could have become a wall classer <laughs> it's in your blood <laughs> uh, uh, back in those days that was uh mid 70s there wasn't a lot of choice in the western suburbs it was a tough gig no doubt about it i had one uncle was a uh, was a builder one uncle was a mechanic i went with a builder my brother went with a mechanic it was that simple yep right. um i was very lucky though uh like i said instilled with plenty of self-confidence from dad uh, dad taught us a couple of things one was that um 
I've never, he's, he used to say this proudly, I've never made a mistake in my life. There's just a stack of things I'm not going to do again. I'll <laughs> run with that one. And everything you do, you can do 10% better. And I, and I love that one. So I, was, I went with an uncle who was a builder, but I was very lucky to be mentored early by an Italian architect. And he took an interest in my interest in the built environment back then. And he taught me a couple of things that have stayed with me and uh, stayed with me for a long time, well, my whole life. Yeah. I mean, did you realise back then, I mean, the, the way that the, that would pan out just, you know, I suppose you go with one uncle who's a builder. But that effect, that spiral effect of how much it has shaped where you are today, did you think back then it might evolve like that? You know, did you ever imagine, I mean, we're going to get to these stories. I'm, mm. I'm jumping ahead a bit here. But did you realise the profound effect being a builder would have, not just getting a job? No, uh, no, I didn't. Um, I think young people should think about that. I think they should do things that they love these days. Uh, I was going to love whatever I did because yeah. uh, Dad taught us what you do, you should be proud of. And, and I was going to be that. No, I thought I would be uh, a great builder in my area. I'd never been to the eastern suburbs at, at 16 years old. I'd never seen it. Uh, I lived in Liverpool. I was a Westie. There's no doubt about Played hard footy out there. We ran with sh no shoes on and didn't have a shirt on for much of the time. But that was my whole world, yeah. as it is when uh, back in those days. These days, kids are so lucky. There's so much opportunity uh, to – and you can choose your, your destiny a bit. But, no, building did – did shape it though. I was um, I was one of the booms. I think it would have been one of the the late eighties boom that we had, and I've lived through three or four of those now. And um, there was a lot of building happening in the eastern suburbs, and they were making huge money out of it. And I was commissioned by a building company to do a to do a job in Vaucluse. Now I had no clue where Vaucluse was. I'd never even heard that word. Uh, as far as my old man was concerned, it's just where all the libs live. It's as simple as that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, still uh, is. It, it still is. Yeah. Blue bloods. Well, Shout all, out to Malcolm. All the libs in me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, uh, so what that meant was this big building company had got this job for a record great price and then they subcontracted it to me and I could still make money out of it. But when I drove into uh, Lower Village High Road, I'd never seen in my life anything like that. These were houses that saw this beautiful harbour. Uh, out the front of the house was brand new appliances that they were throwing out because we were about to put new appliances mm, in yeah. it. And none of it made sense to me, but I said right there and then, this is where I want to be. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and that's where I am. <laughs> Prior to that job, but did you realise you, you were a good craftsman, a good tradesman? You knew you had a good eye for detail? Yeah, my uncle, uh, to this day, I still think he's the greatest craftsman I've ever worked with. There's no doubt about it. He couldn't manage his bootlaces, unfortunately. And what had happened to us Common is, for builders, though, isn't it? It is. It is. Artists. My, uh, yeah. They, uh, with, with my uncle, we, um, we started out. I was an apprentice. I was earning $56 a week. Uh, wow. we, were, we were, yeah, we, and I had plenty. That's Silky's, that's Silky's daily coffee bill. <laughs> yeah. So what had happened was we worked on a, on a place for a year. And as I said, he couldn't manage his bootlace. So at the end of the year, he said, mate, oh, I don't know what we're going to do. I'm going to have to pay your contract money. Cause I can't, I didn't pay your workers comp and I can't afford it now. Cause he, he couldn't save two cents. So he said, why don't we go 70, 30 and you look after your own insurances well, I learned, and I'd been mentored a little bit by this architect, uh, so I was understanding why we were doing things. My uncle couldn't put an invoice together. He was hopeless, yeah, yeah, and he yeah. didn't like that stuff. But I was interested in the business side of it. So what I'd do is I took over the bookwork side because he, he would go for weeks without pay, whereas I wanted, I wanted the money. So I would invoice early. 
I would let him know in advance how things were going to, how much things were going to cost. He never did that. So that by the end of that second year of my apprenticeship, the business was running nicely. And because I'd gone from earning, say, $56 a week to earning more like four or $500 a week, I owned all the tools money could buy. I owned a, a beautiful old Holden one tonner. Uh, that he only ever dreamt about. And I'd paid cash for all this stuff. Yeah. So now we're getting even better jobs. And he said to me uh, at the end of the third year, I stuck it out on uh, 70, 30 uh, to the next year, but I said, we're going 50, 50 from now on. You've never had a ghost so good. And he said to me, no, nah, I won't do that. Typical of the old bloke. So he's stubborn. I said, well, stuff you. I'll go out on my own. Yeah. It was only six months later, his missus rang me up, my auntie, yeah. I love dearly, and said, Baz, why don't you come back? We haven't put an invoice in since you left. And wow. uh, so, so he, in, at the end of it, uh, the end of my apprenticeship, it was my company and my uncle was earning $1,000 a week from me on, and he was best he was to be wages. on wages. Yeah. 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 Isn't it funny that some tradesmen, and he would be one of the best builders, you, if you had to recommend someone, to, you'd probably recommend him? To this day, uh, we'll talk about my yacht later, but I was on the yacht in uh, Sicily, and um, I have little jobs on the boat. Yep. And um, and I said to the boys, uh, my nephews who spend a lot of time, uh, Dan Rule's son, Jack Rule, yep. and, and Callum, my uh, nephews, I said, M- when Pat comes on this boat, you're going to see cr- a craftsman like you've never seen. And and uh, we had a we had a great time doing those little jobs around the yacht uh, in the, uh, the Bay of Tamina yeah. there. It's always amazing, isn't it? You, know, you get that, that situation with a lot of builders. Baz, you're not just uh, good with your hands in that sense, but mate, you're a bit of a uh, you're a bit of a keen sportsman. I know that uh, you know. I know you're a great skier. I know at North Bondi at some stage, once we got you out of Village Low uh, Village Low Road at Vaucluse, Village High Road, Village Low Road, we uh, we got you down to the North Bondi Surf Club in that area, and we never let you go. Once the, the Liberals wanted to go to hold you, but you held a record for uh, on the rowing machine. Yeah, uh, that's held, right. Held a record, which you might not remember, but uh, our researcher, Con Metropolis, does. is a great friend of yours. Con does. I'm, gee, I'm glad you brought that because I honestly had forgotten about well, that. Well, mate, Chris Brown gets a lot of uh, a lot of greater accolades on. If Chris Brown looks as good as you at 50, I'll be happy with it. I, I like Chris Brown a lot, but, mate, he's got a long way to go. He'll do all right, Chris. I'm not too concerned about how he's going to go. I think Chris is going to do very well. I think he's going all right right now. That was at 500 metres, wasn't it? It was. I, I, had the, uh, I, I was the fastest over 44-year-old uh, in a country. On the 500 metres rowing machine. Yeah, <laughs> 500 on the erg. And, mate, uh, how much did sport shape? I'm being, growing up in the West, you know, you're playing footy, you've got no shoes on, no shirt on. Yeah. How much did sport play a big part in your life and how important it is to you? It's interesting, and I think I'll, I think a lot about it now, of course, with my own son. Uh, I was a, a fantastic athlete. There's yep. no doubt about it. I was, uh, myself and Eric Groth represented our whole school uh, wow. uh, right up to the state carnival. Uh, Eric was an incredible athlete, but uh, I was... Uh, you the same age? Yeah, we're exactly the same age. We're in the same class. Is that right? Yeah, uh, 4D, Liverpool boys. Wow, unbelievable. <laughs> but could run, no doubt about that. I was a great high jumper, great long jumper. Eric was a man at 16, so he was everything as well as the shot put and discus and all that. And I believe stuff. he's got Viking blood in him. I mean, some of the family research says that he goes back to the, uh, you know. I wouldn't surprise He me. looks yeah, like it. Yeah, no, because yeah. he looks, I said it to yeah. Eric Groth Jr., his son is a great friend of the Silky and I. We do a lot of different stuff with him. And he said, yeah, dad's got the Nordic or the Viking background. He just looks like he could just chew a big turkey bone yeah. and chuck it out he and would, then run 100 miles. He's a, he's a beautiful man, though. Uh, very, very very nice guy. He was. Uh, he was. He was never one to pick on anybody. He was twice the size of anybody. He yep. never picked on anybody. You need to stick up for an underdog every time back yeah. then. But my point was this: is that um, I was a great athlete, but I was a terrible at school. 
and athletics came with school, I couldn't wait to get out of the joint. Really? Uh, no, to this day, I'm not a very good reader or writer. I suffered then uh, when realised now pretty bad dyslexia. So um, my focus was to be a, a, a man. I wanted to be good at my work and uh, and I saw that as a chance to prove myself. I was never going to prove myself as, a, as an academic uh, but I knew I could prove myself with, with my hands and my... Uh, yeah, and, and the reason I said, so many people I know that know you well say to me, mate, uh, that know you from a young age too, say Barry could have been uh, could have been a sportsman. It, it's something he'd chosen to. And I know that because I know how competitive you are. Yeah, sure. And I know what a perfectionist you are because I've seen you on job sites as well. Baz, Bondi, you, you know, I suppose, you know, you get to Village Low Road, but you have a passion for Bondi. You're a true Bondi local. I know you grew up in the... You know, the Southwest. Yeah. But really, you were in Bondi pretty early. Before you were in Bondi before Bondi became popular, if you like. Yeah. Well, when I, Bondi I, was just another suburb. I was coming from the western suburbs. You recognise the beauty of that place, uh, and I was gifted. I, I've had a great life. I think it was, um, I forget the year, it was probably 89, 90 it would have been, and I was working in Vaucluse, uh, and I walked into Dooley's Cafe, as you know, back then, and uh, oh, it's got me. Um, I saw a beautiful girl there, and uh, and and great saw it. I did too, but I was a bit young. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, incredibly lucky uh, because uh, I, uh, I saw Leonie there, and I thought she was stunning, and uh, we chatted straight away. She was interested in you know my life straight away. But who sat beside me was Peter Cahoon. Yes, and 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 look at this lineup. If you think about it now, if you know the eastern suburbs, uh, uh, an amazing man, Peter Cahoon, sat beside me. We started chatting, and there was all photos on the wall. And uh, I'll tell you this if you ever hear him. Uh, there was all great sportsmen on the wall at Dooley's Cafe, and uh, and Leone said, uh, "Oh, Pete's actually one of the sportsmen there." And uh, there he is, he's in his Iron Man yeah. costume with Scotty Thompson and all these boys. And uh, I said, "Is that you? Is it?" And uh, and Pete said, "Yeah, yeah, that's me." I said. If I had grew up here, I would have been on that <laughs> and, uh, and And Pete just loved that. But with that, as I say, who walks in the door but Jimmy Walker, Olympian. And then straight after that, Scott Van Hooten, one of the greatest rugby players ever to play oh, the yeah. game. Should have played for the Wallabies. Yeah. And um, so I sort of met the best mix of human beings you could meet in the world, and they were in one cafe. And I became friends with all those people on that day, and I, why would you leave? Baz, and this is before Bondi become Bondi, right? Sure it and, was. And, and, and for us, Silky and I, we grew up in Bondi. We're Bondi local. To us, that's just Pete from the surf club. Sure. Scotty, who's yeah. like our footy sort of bit of – we knew he was a great footballer. Yeah. But to them, they were just blokes from our area. They were. Who were good at their sport. So – was it different coming from the West and seeing these? Of course it was. Were they like mini celebrities well, in a little no, way? No, Pete, no, Pete no. was a lifeguard. Pete was then. just, yeah. no, no, it's not that they were lifeguards. No, what I'm getting at is this. I used to live in, a, I used to swim in the Georges River mm-hmm. when it was 50 degrees. You know, you guys grew up with this beautiful ocean lapping at that beautiful smile, what I call this Bondi Beach. Oh, mate. You know, you You've got to look, you've got to open your eyes and have a look around every now and then. Now, I loved the Western suburbs of Sydney. I thought I was the luckiest bloke on earth because I could ride my dirt bike in the paddocks around my area. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's what you grew up with, it's isn't it? It's what you grow up but, but I was smart. I was not smart enough, but I was um, broad enough with my view to realise that this was a beautiful place to bring up children and, uh, and a socialisation. I hadn't had much to do with uh, homosexual people back then. Mm-hmm. Yep. But there was a great mix it was, there was all sorts, and I thought, my, I want my children to have this social education. And acceptance. It's for nothing for us to see that, you know, on the beach or anything else, you know. But 
during that stage, you, you took up politics. What was all that about? Well, uh, Bush knows me. I'm not a screamer. I was a few years after that, though, Bush. It was 2004, so we're, we're talking 14 years. I'd lived in Bondi then. I'd, uh, I'd married my uh, Leone by that stage, uh, and I... I love community. I think uh, I think community. It's for me. It's family. Oh, community, I was just going to. I have to jump in here because I've known Baz and we do a lot of stuff at the surf club together. One thing that uh, attracted me to Barry, besides the way he looked, <laughs> was Barry's always had a great sense of community. And we had a good chat one day because he knew my parents had a, a background in politics. And and you know you've always had a sense of justice. Yeah. You know you've always had a sense of doing the right thing. And your sense of community is bigger than anyone I've seen besides my own mother. Mm. You know and. And I thought, wow. And, you know, if it is a young bloke advising you, I'd be going, Baz, you'd be unbelievable at this. <laughs> and I think everyone that got behind it went, go for it. So all of a sudden, there's this whole movement. Barry's in lounge room at my mum and dad's house. Can I listen? When you did your campaign, just getting a bit, bit of advice. And one thing Baz does is analyzes everything, right? Mm. And you, you, you know, you were pretty excited about the possibility. I think you would have been amazing as a counselor, but I'm so glad that that chapter didn't open up and the next one did. Yeah, so am I, actually. But yeah, as Bush said it, I mean, I'm not a screaming chatter, but there were things in this beautiful community that I'd adopted and it adopted me as well that none of us were happy with. So yes. rather than screaming and shouting, rather than saying, oh, that bloke's a dickhead, I go and ask them for their opinion when I didn't agree with it. I said, well, I'm going to see if the rest of the community goes with me. And um, Gigi went close. A bit of history there. It was the largest donkey vote ever recorded. Uh, yeah, what right. that means was the scrutineers from the two uh, stronger parties had determined that uh, either way I wasn't going to make it. It was a good time, though. Uh, I, 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 well, I did your... Uh, shaking hands and kissing babies? I did Barry's launch. I told the worst joke in the... Well, it wasn't the worst. It's a great joke, but it just went down like a lead balloon. I don't think, I don't think it was the right audience for the, for the politics. What was it? You still uh, remember it? Yeah, I do remember it. It was a, a joke where uh, Bill Clinton, uh, was. we talked about how important communication is, and Barry's a great communicator, as you can see, and uh, you know, and Baz was there, and I said, you know, communication is the, the, the single message. Baz and I had talked about it. I said, it reminds me. I said, you know, some people get communication wrong. Barry won't. Bill Clinton, well, he didn't communicate very well with Monica Lewinsky, did he? And no one knew she was dyslexic because Bill actually asked Monica to sack his cook. He was unhappy with the food in the White House. And uh, I think... It's worked for me about 20 times. That time it didn't. <laughs> yeah. Lost four votes that night. <laughs> <laughs> Buzz, um, you know, we move into, I suppose, uh, you know, an area of your life that's, you know, something so challenging. And one thing about you I know is your competitive nature. And we might have a break and talk about this because it deserves its own, uh, you know, sort of section or chapter of this podcast, cancer. We're going to come back after this and talk about that amazing experience and how you handled it. You're on A Cure for Boldness with Silky Bush and, of course, our special guest, Barry Dubois. Radio Hub is Australia's premier podcasting facility. With high-quality sound equipment and production services, Radio Hub is a one-stop shop for all your podcasting needs. So, if you're ready to jump into the exciting realm of podcasting, contact Radio Hub on 0402 870-900 or email info at radiohub.com.au You're listening to Cure for Boldness. Of course, we're here with Barry Dubois, one of our great guests. And uh, Baz, you know, we, we've talked so much about where it all began for you, you know, your sporting prowess, you know, uh, you know, developer, you know, builder, sustainability campaigner. You're now a TV presenter. There's so much to talk about, but there's a chapter in your life that's probably your lowest point and... I think people are defined by their experiences and, you know, you've sort of touched on it with the importance of your family. This particular chapter of this podcast is so important to you because it's 
what you call the low point, mm. bring about a bit of depression. But one thing I almost forgot to uh, to go over with you is building at Bondi, you fell off the roof mm. and broke your back. And so many things happened. You know, your, your, your mum had passed and I know how close you were to your mum. And then yeah. Leonie had her experience with cancer. So we'll start with you falling off the roof at Bondi and you discovered the cancer. So yeah, take it away. Yeah, that's a tough one. It's, um, it was, like you said, I'd had a beautiful decade in Bondi. Uh, anybody that knew anything about real estate made a stack of money in that period. You and I talked about it a lot and, uh, and I did, I did reasonably well out of it. I'd acquired quite a bit of property and I, I secure one of the best properties in, in Australia, as far as I'm concerned, at North Bondi there. And, uh, I developed a penthouse on the roof of that and, uh, right there on Ben Buckler. And I remember it distinctly. I said to Leonie, I've got to identify this, this leak every time it rains. It was, it was tarped up and that, but there was six or seven, it was eight units in there. It was, uh, it was an afternoon and, uh, I went out, I said to her jokingly, if you hear a thud call the ambulance, cause it's a five story building mm. and, uh, it was pouring rain. I, I had a makeshift harness on and the job was scaffolded up all around. I was in the peak of the, the apex of the roof, the top of the roof there. And I, you know, it's a funny thing as a builder, you, you have these ideas. If, uh, if I slip, I'll punch through the tiles and grab a bat and, and I'll, I'll just do this and I'll just do that. Builders in those days took too many chances and I was one of them. I was in the middle of the roof. It was grey skies and rain was coming down around me. And my body took a slight slip down the hill but regained its, uh, itself. And all of a sudden I knew I was gone. I wasn't going to be able to lean down, grab anything and I started to slip and started to run down the roof and, and it, what seemed like ages, but a split second, I thought, I'll just grab the scaffolding and I'll be right. And to this day, it gives me shivers. Um, as I smash through the 6B2 at the, at the bottom of the roof, which is the top of the scaffolding, and reach for a piece of water pipe, which is the top of the scaffolding, I saw my, my middle finger and my ring finger just snap in half. And I just sailed past it on four and a half stories up. And I thought I, look, I had time to look over my shoulder and see that it was too far to make it. I, you can't make that. It's terminal velocity is it uh, just over You've been 100 kilos? I was uh, about 105 at the time. Yeah. And, uh, and I said to myself, you can't make it. And I, and I got the shits so bad as I was going down because I was so close to be to the – I was so close to being as happy as a man can be and uh, I was going to stuff it all up right there. Somehow I landed flat on my back. I, uh, the aftermath of that was uh, my leg was broken in two places. My shoulder was broken. A couple of ribs were broken. Fingers were broken and my back was broken in uh, L2, L3 and L5. But, uh, and Leonie had heard the thud. So um, it was pouring rain and I was looking up and uh, it, I don't know how long that was and, and we don't discuss it that often, but I, I remember the ambulance driver arriving and the rain was dropping on my face and people were trying to, the people around me were crying and uh, it was pretty tough. It was, a, it was a tough gig. But I said to the ambulance driver, I can feel that I'm moving my right foot and my root moving my both feet. And he said, no, both feet aren't moving. And I said, does that mean I'm paralyzed or not? And he says, no, you're not paralyzed. I said, all right, just tell everybody to go home. I'll be right. (laughs) And, uh, but, uh, with that sort of injury, I was, uh, I was being blood for about nine weeks and I was, uh, I was in a bad way for quite a while. And that, that you're right. That started off, uh, 
a, a bunch of events that it drove me to a pretty dark place. That was 2000. Um, in 2004, uh, after a pretty tough battle, <clears throat> my, uh, my mum passed away from cancer. That was hard to watch. Um, and then, uh, my, uh, my wife got cancer as well, uh, on our 13th attempt of IVF. Uh, we were, we were pregnant about 14 or 16 weeks with twins. And, uh, I heard that scream that I've heard many times, uh, which meant it's another mm-hmm. failure. Mm-hmm. Heard that from the bathroom, so we got to the hospital again. And uh, a couple of days after that, the, the the doctor said to us that the test had come back and that Leonie had, had cervical cancer, and that had. Um, Is that what contributed to the, the continuous failures? Well, uh, possibly, Bush. Uh, it, it, it's hard to know now, but what that did tell us right there and then that we were never going to have children, uh, or at least at that stage, we thought we weren't going to have children. When you're an alpha male competitive and uh, and you, you like to control what you can and you want to do your best for the people you love and then a couple of things in a row like that happen and you can't help, you can't do anything, it, it, it started to spiral me into a, into a bad place. I'd gone up then to about 117, 118 kilos because with a, you know, the broken back comes a lot of pain. With mm. a lot of pain... Uh, you start cutting corners. You, you you have to get out of the car to get petrol, so you might as well fill up on a couple of picnic bars and a chocolate milk. Yep. You know, you're 170 kilos with a broken back a couple of early years earlier. You, it's very painful. So the combination of the pain, uh, the fact that the direction, when I was out in the western suburbs and saw the picket fence and a ski boat I used to dream about back then and two cars and a couple of kids, that dream wasn't coming true for me. I had all the money in the world. Uh, or what I saw as all the money in the yeah, world, of and uh, but the the I, I just I was confused. I was How very, old were you about at that stage? I was uh, forty four. Forty four. Yeah. And uh, the thing that held me together, and uh, and thank God, well, a couple of things that held me together, but uh, and one was of course Leone. She never gave up on me. I gave up a couple of times. She didn't. And uh, I I love my work. And uh, I worked hard and, uh, and I kept my head in that. But I was in this, I'm a, a trader, uh, not a trader, but an investor in the stock market mm. and, and in real estate. And um, I could see pretty heavily, I could see pretty clearly, even though I was going through all that pain. And depression's a funny thing. I'll, I'll, I'll spend a few minutes on it. You don't go from being normal or happy to sad overnight. It, it takes a couple of drivers, you know. It could be the gas bill, and the, uh, for some blokes, it could be the gas bill and the, and the mortgage payment turning up on the same day, and you go, oh, sugar, I wanted to buy the kids this this week, and now mm-hmm. I can't afford it. These things start to build up. So I think it took me about, you know, from the accident and, and putting the extra weight on and uh, not being mobile. Like, losing your mum. I mean, all that. All the people that. that know Barry Dubois well, and, and this is going to go out to people that only see Barry Dubois who's on TV. Mm. The, the people that need to know that you, you had an amazing relationship with yeah. your family and yeah. your mum was such a huge driver in your life. I, I sat on the beach with you and, and Con, our great friend who, you know, introduced me to you and Leonie, I, mm. you know, those chapters where you had realised that, you know, you may not have kids, where you did lose your mum and I just remember how emotional it got mm. you. So these are all the building blocks, if you like, or the bricks they are. that make the wall of depression. That's right. That's yep. right. And uh, But uh, thankfully, uh, work kept me going. And uh, it was around 2005, 2006, I could I predicted pretty clear. To me, it was very clear. Two things. I'd lost my mum 
the, the story wasn't playing out the way it was. The market was in a inflated position. I remember saying this to you, Bush, get, get rid of your real estate now, get rid of your shares now because it's going to crash. So I was very lucky to liquidate, uh, uh, I amassed a, a decent amount of money and I liquidated all that property. Uh, the property I know you like to talk about is uh, is one still re- regarded as uh, at the third highest per square meter rate of real estate in this well, it's, country. It's the best. It's the best house in the world, I think. Mm. And and one of the things that you know the, the listener probably would be interested in is it was just a roof space, and to mm. have the foresight and the vision and come from the wet. There's there's so many ingredients that go into the melting pot. I guess because I'm a bit closer to it. It's really fascinating, but what you did there was you built the best. And that was the old block from Hal Ashwood, the old politician yeah, right. owned the whole That's block. Right. And I do remember getting a phone call from you, you know, about that block, and we had a chat about, you know, what you did there. It was amazing, and I watched you build it. Well, again, it's uh, it's coming from the western suburbs and seeing seeing the eastern suburbs, and when you live in it and and you realise it's just a beautiful place, you don't you take it a bit for granted. But every property I looked at, I saw potential plus. And uh, yeah, you're right. It was uh, it was a whole street full of three story buildings. And this was the only two-story building. I said, that should be a three-story building. And I, I said to the owners in the, uh, in the apartment, I said, I'll fix up this whole building. I'll render it and I'll redo the foyers and I'll fix the, roo- the, the leaky roof that you had. And, um, and I said, for that, all I want is that space. And, uh, and that space turned into an $8.5 million penthouse. So, Baz, <laughs> because it is such a hot topic, we've had other guests on A Cure for Baldness and Matty D from FTW and Suicide Prevention Australia. Yeah. Silky and I uh, do a lot of work with, um, you know, pe- uh, you know uh, plebs pros personality for suicide prevention, all these different things. You know, you're an ambassador for Are You OK? You know, yeah. sit on the board of, uh, you know, charities and, and that being one of them. It's funny for someone to turn around to me and say Barry DeBar was depressed once. Mm. If you asked me that in a pub or if you said that to me at a restaurant knowing that I know you, I'd say, no, never, not mm. Barry DeBar. It's amazing that a fellow that I know, like you, and I know you well, um, with the qualities you have as a human being, can not only talk about that, but how easy it is. And as you just said, the trigger points, because I think it's fascinating. Silky and I talk about this all the time. It's guys our age. It could be guys at a young age. It can be anyone. It's the biggest killer. It is. It's the biggest killer of men. And I think it's only the last five years we've really become aware of this killer. And and you just said it. It could be the gas bill. No one knows what's going on. Well, Gavin Larkin started Are You OK Day in 2009. His father, Barry, was a a very notable bloke in in Bondi, the Icebergs, uh, footy coach, all, you know, great guy at the bar. And, And when he took his life... Gavin uh, was shocked and, and, and scared and thought, if this can happen to that guy that everybody loves and loves everybody, it can happen to anybody. Suicide is a long way, quite frankly, from where I was. I, I, I know the, it was. The, 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 the depression is something that does. It, it, it comes up and it sneaks up on you. But Australian men are classics for it. That She'll be right. We've run a, we've run a nation on she'll be right. But sometimes... It ain't right. Yep. It's okay, but it ain't right. And you've got to get it right. And uh, that's I'm very passionate about Are You OK Day. It's uh, the 8th of September will be Are You OK Day this year. But we know now that engaging in conversation and following up on that conversation, showing empathy once you realise and, and, and let the person know that they, they're not okay, this helps. This, this takes the pressure off. So it begs the question to bring it, bring it home, this particular topic on this note, Baz, you see your mate in the street. You yeah. see someone who you kind of know. You see someone from your area. It doesn't matter where you live or where you come from or what you have. Yeah. You don't know what's behind those eyeballs. I call you know, call the eyelids the curtains. I say, mate, you don't know if the curtains are up or down on some people because they're looking at you, but they're not really listening. And you don't know what's going on. So what is the message out there that you would advise yeah. in this particular topic? Because I think this is a really 
critical point of well, error. Well, it's important because it's part of my life. My wife understood that I was depressed. Yes. Uh, I wanted to leave her. I wanted to uh, do all sorts of radical things. And and she said, babe, you're depressed. You, you, you've you got to go and see a doctor. And I said, please don't think that of me. Don't. And what I was actually saying was, don't think I'm weak. I can look after you. Don't worry. Oh, you know, I was a fix-it guy. Blokes, we're funny things. We like to fix things. But if we're broken, we don't want anybody to know. Yeah. Now, so what she did, and this is, I advise a lot of people, you know your friends. And if they show a change in mood, if they show a change in personality, check in with them. And she said to, she said to my friends, uh, my close mate Rod and my brother Mick, he's not right. He'll say to you he's right, but he's not. So you're going to have to get it out of him. And what they did was a bit of reverse psychology. And they said to me, mate, how are you going? And I said, no, I'm killing it, mate. Don't worry about me. And I said, yeah, well, I hope so, because I'm struggling. And when, when my brother said that to me, I said, what do you mean you're struggling? He said, oh, it's just tough. And then I, it upsets me to say it, but I remember breaking down that at one point. Then I said, you, I know you'd be right because I'm struggling. And he said, are you? He just said to me, are you? And I said, yeah. I said, I'm, I don't know what I'm thinking sometimes. I, since mum's gone, it's just been hard. And, uh, and he says, yeah, it's hard. And uh, the weight that probably came off my shoulders that day was the start of my cure, and uh, that's why that's why I'm so passionate about it. And, uh, so, so from this from this cure we're calling it, you had a passion to sail, and passion for build a boat, yeah. and that is the, the next kind of chapter, I suppose. When you you got through the depression, yeah. You, well, your lost... lovely your lovely wife said, "Go." On. I'm booted for six months. (laughs) Where you go? She said, "Do whatever you have to." I I said, "I've got. I want to sell out everything and start again. If if I've got to a point, uh, I want to start again." I'd said to my brother and my dad, the last time I remember being happy was me and Mick would go up and down the Georges River in a tinny, and we said, "When we're older, we're going to sail this thing around the world," you know. And uh, so I said to Dad, who was struggling terribly after I lost a mum in 2006, I said. What we're going to do is I'm not going to wait till you're dying to say that we're going to hang around together. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to cash in here and uh, I'm going to go to Europe. We're going to buy a big yacht and we're going to sail at home. Leone's happy if we do that and uh, she just wants me to be happy. And uh, he said, what do you want to go and hang with him? I ties for. <laughs> but I, <laughs> but uh, we can, I convinced him. We had Sounds three. very southwestern Sydney, basically. <laughs> you reckon. And uh, we had three beautiful seasons together. Thankfully, Leone fell in love with, uh, with our boat and our life over there. I retired at 2000, in 2006 at the age of 46. And uh, we spent the next uh, five years uh, spending six months uh, of the year on our beautiful yacht, Bella Sonny. Mm-hmm. And the other six months of the year in our home in Bondi Beach, and uh, we were very lucky. Um, we were very lucky in the sense that Leone never gave up on having children. It's one of the, you know, I was depressed, and I had given up on. It having was a children. huge part of yeah. both any couple, but you and Leone knowing it was a huge part of, uh, you know, yeah. it was a great wish, and you tried so hard, and everyone was on the outside, just you know. Well, we went, as you know, after, uh, after that, we uh, we went to China. We yep. tried to adopt. Uh, we wanted to adopt in China, and then that fell over because we uh, she'd had cancer, and they're not keen to adopt children to people they figure they're going to die. Wow! And uh, but then we discovered surrogacy. And, yes. Um, we we started that journey of surrogacy, which uh, took longer than expected as well, but. Uh, you know, that, then I guess that, that takes us to the next stage of my life was um, I was sailing and, uh, and uh, Leone was 
chasing in the background. She didn't want to put pressure on me. And being that we, na- uh, not naturally, because our children were born naturally, but um, the, the normal process wasn't going to happen for us. So yes. there was no mad rush on it. And, um, and uh, I was sailing and, um, and Peter Cahoon, I rang him up one day and, um, and I said to him, Pete, I want to sail. I'm in Italy. I want to sail down to Africa. And, uh, and he said, how long will that take? And I told him, he says, I haven't got that long. He said, I'll meet you in Africa. And I said, well, I'm on the boat on my own. So that means I've got to sail single-handedly to Africa uh, from Sicily. Uh, and he said, well, you can do it. If anyone can do it, you can do it. And I yep. said, all right. Does that mean you're going to meet me there? So, he, so we decided we'd meet in uh, Tunisia in Tunis, in the Bay of Tunis, seven days later. So uh, he jumped in a plane and I... Uh, Any troubles on the ocean? Uh, uh, do you remember that story? I do. <laughs> That's what I'm <laughs> getting at. It's a, it's a good story. It's a great I, story. There was a couple of blokes that had been on the boat, and I mentioned I wanted to go to North Africa. There'd been some... Um, te- I don't like to use the word terrorism, but there'd been some problems in, in Tunis. It's, a, it's an Islamic country, yeah. of which I love. And um, he... Um, the boys said, no, they don't want to go to Tun- Tunisia. Uh, it's too dangerous there. They'll cut your head off. And I said, I've lived my life. I've put my hand out to shake hands and smile, uh, and that'll get you nine-tenths of the way there. I don't care who it is. You know, I don't care what colour you are, what you look like. 100%. Uh, I'll, I'll smile at you and shake your hand. I'm, I'm, I'm your brother as far as I'm concerned. But it's funny. Uh, I set off to sail to North Africa on my own, uh, and that that – is uh, it's the first long sail I'd had, so it was three nights, uh, one after another. Mm. You're not talking to anybody, yeah. You're not uh, seeing anybody, and um, as much as my boat's fully equipped with radar and all, all this pilot stuff and all that, you know, you don't get the sleep you need. And uh, it was about the third day in, I've said to myself, you know, what if they were right? What if what do they do, bloody chop man? No one will even have a clue where I am. So I'd say, I like to arrive at my destinations early in the morning, not in the dark and not late in the afternoon. Early in the morning, people are keen to help you. In the afternoon, they've got a gutful. Yeah. You know, I don't care where you are in the world. I don't care if you're in Iraq, Iran or, or, or Bondi Beach. You know, my, all blokes work hard to pay, make a living to, to, to look after their kids and Saturday afternoons they want to watch the footy or play golf, no yeah. matter where they are in the world. But three o'clock... On any afternoon, you've more or less had enough, yeah. you know. So I like to arrive around seven, between seven and nine, get them before morning tea. Uh, you, the you, tradie you, coming yeah, out. It's yeah. the tradie coming out. And you. Right so, about smoke out time. Yeah. So I'd worked <laughs> out that if, if I kept sailing, I was going to arrive um, uh, too early uh, in the morning and be too dark. And, you know, you don't want to go into it. I've got to check into customs on my own. I, I can't speak the language. I can speak a little French, but and, and most Arabs can speak French. But... Uh, and I was, I think I was a day early for Pete as well. And what had happened was I'd, my brain started to go on me and I thought, I, I'm not going to go there now. I'm going to, I'm going to find a little secretive bay in the Bay of Tunis is about 40 miles deep. Okay. It's, you know, it's a giant bay, like a 20 times bigger than Botany Bay. So it's still four hours sail from the, from the mouth to where I'm going to check into customs. Mm. And there was all these stories like you ring up and say, I'm coming in, and they say, do you have weapons? You say, no, they come out and rob you, you know. I don't believe any of that stuff, but you throw enough mud, it starts to stick. So what happened, Bush, was I, um, I've seen on, the, on my charts, there's a little bay there. So I've pulled into the bay, I've dropped the anchor, and I've set up on the, on the radar, it, it'll do a little beep if someone comes close to you. So I set that up, go down to my cabin. As soon as I get down to my cabin, 
beep, 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 goes off. I race upstairs. I look at the look at the radar. There's about seven boats, six or seven boats surrounding my boat. I'm oh shit, you know, pirates, pirates. I'm gone. Yeah. I'm, uh, I said, "Well, bugger them. If they're gonna have a go at me, they want to have a good go." It's what I figured. So I've got. It's funny. I wish. I wish I could have. There wasn't selfies in those days. So I wish I'd have taken one. I've got one knife strapped to one thigh. I've got another knife strapped to the other thigh. I've got my uh, equalizer. I used to call it my baseball bat <laughs> uh, on one side, and I've got two. Thank God. Two loaded spear guns, and I'm figuring they're going to come up the companionway. I'll just take them out as they're coming up, and I'll get me in the end, but I'm going to take a couple with you. Take a couple with you. Because the, my mindset it, you yeah, know, 100%. It, it, it got me. And you're away at sea by yourself? 100%. I'd, I'd been away from anybody for you know, four days. Oh, cabin fever. Cabin fever, exactly. So uh, thank God. Uh, thank goodness, I should say. The sun hit my face. I must have fallen asleep eventually. And I woke up um, to to those boats of families in fishing boats. I dropped my anchor right in the middle of their nets. <laughs> and they knew that I would have been concerned and they heard the alarm. So they kept backing out. Every time they'd come close, the alarm would go off and they'd back out. So they were holding up fish and saying <laughs> nets and uh, beautiful people. They came on board. They got their beautiful thing. This is why I don't carry a gun on the boat because I'd shoot someone for sure. hundred, especially I've been to sea by itself and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and no yeah. one to talk to. And there it was. So I shared morning tea with those guys. We had a cup of tea and then I sailed the next four hours in and met, uh, met Pete. Yeah. Mate, it's, I mean, just it's amazing. Your stories on the Mediterranean on your boat, I mean, has it, that could take a life of itself. I, I mean, you did do a show with Pete Calhoun, you know. Well, that's where it was. Pete so being a TV guy, and... I, I was never interested in TV. I didn't have the head for it. But we then uh, th- uh, flew a thousand kilometres south from where we left the boat. There, be- the most trustworthy people on earth yep. down there. They don't drink, so they're not mugs. <laughs> and uh, they, you know, they're, they're just so honest. It's not funny. But we t- we flew a thousand k south to the foot of the Atlas Mountains, and we did a, a 1,200K trek across the Sahara. And Pete being Pete videoed the whole thing and both very passionate about Indigenous construction and architecture. So even in the Sahara, where we came across troglodytes, these are people that live under the sand, mm-hmm. and uh, Bedouin tribesmen. But Pete and I were lucky enough to spend time with Bedouin tribesmen I don't think it had ever seen white men. Yeah. And uh, incredible, incredible story. But Pete took a bunch of video of that. And uh, and then in 2010, I think it was, he was asked to cast for the show The Renovators. Pete was never going to do The Renovators. He's installed on uh, Bed Homes and Gardens and he's got his own amazing show, Great Australian Sandcastles. So Pete being Pete and uh, I think my number one fan and I love him for it, he put a lot of me on that boat and looking at these constructions that we saw at the Sahara there. And um, I was very lucky to this day, I say lucky, because one of the most powerful men in TV, a guy by the name Carl Fennessy, came across that piece of video by chance, because he was never meant to see it, but he's the boss of Shine TV. And he said, uh, listen, I like that architect bloke, but that big builder is a classic, and I want him for the renovators. Oh, yeah. They rang me up twice, and um, three times they rang me, and I said I wasn't interested. And um, but then I guess that takes starts the next stage of my life is what you brought up before. I was surfing on the south coast and uh, went under a right-hander. Uh, and my neck had a, a fearsome crack in it, 
And uh, for me, with three broken bones in the back and legs and all that, I do cracks all the time. But what that was, uh, Silky, I'm not sure if you know, but that was the last of my C1 vertebrae caving in because I had a giant tumour there that was attacking my spine. So um, as it happens, I didn't realise that till March, but it was in March. Uh, it was on Leone's birthday in March. I'd found out that I had this giant tumour in my, in my base of my brain there. And um, we're sitting, I remember it to this day, uh, sort of time stands still when that sort of thing happens to you. But God, yeah. the, um, I'm sitting there with Timmy Steele, the surgeon, and a couple of other specialists. And one specialist said, Barry, this tumour is so aggressive, I give you about three months to live. And um, thankfully I'd been through that uh, bout of depression because every bike pretty hard to take that. Leone was uh, incredibly upset and uh, and I was uh, nervous, but I wasn't letting anybody know that. And uh, Tim Steele said, no, nah, no, nah, I, I, I don't go with that. I, I want to go in and have a look at it first. And I said, Timmy, you do whatever you've got to do because I'll do the rest. Don't worry about it. And Leone said to the other lady that said I had three months that she didn't want her in the room anymore. So uh, but she didn't say it as gently as that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I'll let it go. And uh, I, I, said to, I said to Leone, I said, don't worry, babe, I'll be fine. And I, I turn on the phone because I've got a boat in Europe. I've got you know, money in the game in Ireland. So I thought, if I have got three months to live, I've got some sorting out to do here. So I yeah. want to get my brother in here as quick as possible and start working some stuff out. But as it happens, I turn on the phone. Who should ring me but the casting agent for the renovators for the fourth time? <laughs> it was hysterical in hindsight, but she said, Hi there, it's Barry. It's Kirsty Advance. Cast of thousands, we're really, really keen to get you in for this show. We'd kill to have you in the show, Barry. We'd do anything to have you just do a casting for us because we think you're the right guy. And it was a really surreal moment in my life. Like I, It was like I was watching it from afar. How can that person be on the phone so hyper when this has just happened? Everybody else in the room's crying. And, uh, and I said, I'll tell you what. I nearly threw the phone out the window, <laughs> but I said, I'll tell you what. You ring me back in three months. If you still want me to do it in three months and I answer the phone, I'm on. I was on in six months. Yeah. That's that, a, it's a good story. I reckon that's a perfect place to take a short break and find out what happened over those next <laughs> few months when we come back. You're on a cure for baldness. If you need your office spick and span, your carpets cleaned, your toilets glam, or your plumbing checked by a maintenance man, call Fit Services. If your outdoors too have been neglected, your car park needs painting, your garden's protected, your pathways swept or a new fence erected, call Fit Services. Maybe you need something built brand new, an office refurbishment, an extension or two, or an AC system with ducting right through. Call Fit Services. Fit Services. Quality services, second to none. Call 1-300-011. Yes, and welcome back to A Cure for Baldness. Of course, we're here listening to the amazing life so far, and there's so much more living, of course, but uh, hence the living room. (laughs) Pardon the pun there, hard to get it in. (laughs) But seriously, Barry Dubois, you are just a treasure trove of great stories, and I think, you know, just off air, you said, I remember better than you. It's because they're fascinating. Mm. The experience you talk about are amazing. We are going to touch on one, though, that... I think gives people a lot of inspiration, a a lot of hope, you know. You know, I've had it in my family with my own brother, and... um, you know, I remember seeing you uh, one day, and we, you know, we know each other very well from Bondi, and you were at uh, Waverley College, and I won't forget this, when you see people who you know are always fit, always going somewhere, entrepreneurial, you know, uh, you make, I don't believe in so much luck, I believe in people making luck, but being in the right place, but that sort of thing. 
Well, there was one thing that shocked me, and I saw you, and you turned around, and when you turned around, your shoulders come with it, and that's the first time. You've always been a healthy, fit individual. Mm. I was there when you held the record on the rower. It's the cancer. It's the tumour in your neck. Yeah, if you remember back then, I'd gone from 105 kilos. I think I was uh, 78 or 80 uh, kilos there as well. That but, was uh, the elephant in the room. So, so, yeah, so what had happened was uh, we'd found out that I had this giant tumour. Um, Timmy Steele, the best, one of the best surgeons in the business as far as I'm concerned, so, you know, one of the people that helped save my life, he went in there and he put a heap of structure in my neck. Uh, I've got So I've got four... Uh, brackets down both sides of the spine. He tried to put in a wedge of bone from my hip to the C1 vertebrae, but that didn't take. Uh, and then he put a bracket from those rods up to and screwed that into the back of my skull with Ryobi, I hope. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> shameless plug there. <laughs> yeah, shameless plug there, Ryobi. Uh, and uh, so after that, straight after that, uh, he said before we went in, he said, Baz, I don't know what we're going to do. He yep. said, but I'm not going to give up on you and I'm sure you're not going to give up. And I said, bugger that. I, I was no way I'll be giving up. So they uh, they secured my head first because effectively I'd broken my neck. Mm-hmm. It had, uh, there was no connection between my spine and my head. Um, I, I remember I rode my Harley to the doctors to find that out. And I often think if a car had pulled up quick in front of me and I hit the brakes and my head just popped off, which could have easily happened, everybody just would have thought it was another motorbike accident because no one would have even checked and they wouldn't have known that I had this, this cancer running through my body. But straight after that, we so we discovered I've got six other tumours in my body. Uh, they're only quite minute tumours because uh, I have what's called a plasma cytoma myeloma multiple. So this is a, a, a cancer of the blood, cancer of plasma, and it searches out and, and looks for weaknesses in your body. We all think that when I fell off the roof 10 years earlier, uh, that may have been... The beginning. A beginning of one of those weaknesses. Yep. And, um, and I lost the C1. Um, there's another one in my jaw. There's a few around the place, one in the hip. But uh, they then, uh, as they do now, it's amazing what they can do with, with modern medicine, but they pump the radiotherapy into me for nine weeks every single day. Uh, they just drove it into me. And that killed all my, um, all my muscles to swallow and I couldn't talk and uh, you remember what I was I like. Yeah. I couldn't eat, so I, I went from 105, 110 down to 78 kilos. I walked out of hospital nine weeks later. You did look pretty good, though. Uh, well, I, <laughs> you you did, that still one. didn't look too bad. I, I tell you, didn't think I looked pretty good because the day I walked out of hospital, the day I was walking out of St Vincent's for the last of the therapy, that phone rang. And it was Kirsty Dillavar. She said, "Go back in three months." She called back to the day no in three months later. What about her timing? And yeah, yeah, I've told this story. She cries every time I tell her. But uh, she she said, "We're keen to get you in for a casting." And I said, "Well, I've been a bit crook, but I'll come in." <laughs> and uh, Carl Fantasy saw this uh, be 110 kilo. I was, you know, larger than life, larger charismatic. Than life character. And I'm sure when I walked under the set, they thought I had HIV. It, yeah. uh, I, I have got all these – I've got half a kilo of titanium holding my head on. I've had nine weeks of intense radiotherapy and haven't eaten a scrap since then. And uh, I could only walk 10 metres before I'd nearly pass out because the, the swelling in my neck had, had cr- crushed down on the arteries that take the blood to your brain. So – I'd st- still to this day, my peripheral vision starts to go, so I sit down and just let the blood build up again in, in the brain. 
I walked onto that set and this guy, Carl, looked at me and he thought, it's not the guy I remember. <laughs> and yeah, uh, and he said to me, and I didn't know what it was for, it was for the show, The Renovators, but he said, now I want you to imagine, Barry, we've brought this place, uh, it's cost, and I said, what's it cost? He said, well, that doesn't really matter. I said, of course it matters. Uh, because I, I just don't like not knowing the whole story. And he said, well, just imagine we've paid $1.2 million for it and we're going to have $120,000 to renovate it and then we're going to sell it for a profit. I said to him, well, you're not going to sell this for a profit. I mean, you're kidding yourself. I said, you've overpaid, shockingly. And uh, he says, oh, it's real estate. It always goes up. I said, what makes you think that? You know, and we'd already been through one crash. And he said, well, the place next door is worth 1.2. I said, I've never seen a place more overcapitalised. I said, and look at this one. It's got Band-Aids all over it. It needs a heart transplant. This guy said to me, well, okay, because <laughs> like, most people want to be on TV. I was very sceptical of TV. I thought they were out to get me somehow, and I know a lot of people think that as well. But yep. I, the long story short, everything they wanted me to do, I said no, and I looked like I had HIV. And the more I said no, the more they wanted me. And no. um, I remember Carl saying to me, well, let's say you had a me, I had a million bucks. What would you advise I do with it? And I said, well, I'd put 60% of it uh, – uh, into blue chip stocks. Uh, at the moment, I put another uh, a 20 into some mid caps and I said, I put the rest in the bank because you're still pulling 7.5%. I said, I'll wait for this property to recorrect and I'd probably look getting back into property. And he goes, okay. Well, <laughs> I'm going to get you to talk about my finances, but just imagine this is happening. And the long story short, Carl and I became good friends from that point. Because uh, he probably I, made a couple of mil. <laughs> and I, uh, I've, uh, now I became the mentor and judge uh, builder on the renovators, yep. uh, along with Brendan Moore, Robin Holt yeah. and Peter Ho. I thought that was a cracker show. I had no clue what we were doing. Uh, and I've said it before and I'll and I, I, I put the experience down to this. I was minding my own business on the station somewhere and a train goes flying through the station and next minute I was on the front seat of first class and it was just a world I'd never seen before. Yeah. And I, but I loved it. I couldn't believe it. That I couldn't believe the waste of money that's in TV, but those, the catering, the people that seemed to be standing around doing nothing. But I had these 26 competitors who were trying to do their best to, to renovate these homes and the thing of uh, reality TV is that is a the, the, the couple of things you do is exhaust the contestants, fill them up on alcohol and sugar, and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> and it's pretty and, much the case, isn't and, it? And, and and I was a I was a funny one because I said to them, "Don't try and you know put me in King G's and make me drink stubbies on Friday. I'm not into that. That's not what I do. I, I I work with you know I love building and I love design. The show I thought was a cracker. I really thought it was brilliant. And and if you look at the numbers of that show, it was brilliant. We were, our average for the week was eight hundred fifty thousand. I mean, they'd be happy with that yeah. these days. Yeah. Um, but the block it revamped the block, and uh, and the block used to be one night a week before that. But because the renovators came in, it was going to be four nights. They came under four. And I think I used to love the block, but I think that's what saved the block. Yeah. When we, when we came on, they had their white rooms. They sort of changed it up a little bit like yep. what we were doing and uh they won that war uh but uh, the ratings war the, 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 yeah yeah definitely and um and they decided channel 10 decided to can the uh the the renovators uh but they liked me and i was very uh, thankful of that but i was gifted is that uh at the end of that year i remember it so another one of those events in my life that i'll i'll never forget I walked into uh, what we call the upfronts. The upfronts is where all the sponsors of the station meet all the celebrities, if you want to call them that. 
Well, I was very lucky enough to sit beside Amanda Keller. And I, you know, I say this to Leone as well, but I, I fell in love with that woman that night. She's the smartest, quickest yeah, witted. she's brilliant. Kindest person I've ever met in my life. And uh, we, we have shared so many things, IVF, a loss of a parent. We talked and talked and talked and, and we had a kinship born that night yeah. and uh, she'd mentioned to the producers uh, that she really liked me and my style. And um, and as I always do, and even you've been through this, Bush, I, I redesigned her house on a napkin while we were having the chat. Yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. and um, and she was in she was in the making of a show that was going to be called the Li- the living room. It was going to be a bit of a talk show on a Friday night, more like your Graham Norton sort of a thing. But then it had developed that they needed sponsors, which was going to require you know DIY and cooking and that so they decided to try out um she suggested me and uh Channel 10 already liked me uh I'd never seen Miguel before and uh I knew Chris Brown from the Bondi vet and I remember uh we I and I, I really enjoyed the conversation I had with Amanda and then we had a cup of tea at her house some weeks later but we were asked to all meet in this, um, you know, Knotts Avenue. There's a block of white units yep, above yep. it. Well, they'd rented a unit in there and they got us in for a casting. And, the, and normally what would happen in this scenario, there's a bunch of questions that producers would have. And they would bounce these questions off us to see how each of us responded. Well, I saw uh, uh, Amanda at the door and we walked in together and then Miguel arrived, uh, like like the the, the you know yeah, like the bull, like, a, like a raging bull, raging like the bull, bull, the crazy yeah. bull. And Chris Brown was there. Well, the four of us started talking in that room. Um, producers were filming things, but we it was as if to us they weren't even there. And we chatted. The four of us chatted for about two hours. The process was meant to go like this: we'd go in there, sit down, not say anything. Producers would ask us questions; they'd analyse our answers and see if we were going to get on together. Well, after two hours, the the EP said, "Well, it's pretty obvious you guys get along. I think this is going to work out pretty well." We said, oh, is that it, is it? Let's go to the icebergs. And, uh, and we've been great friends since that day. And, and, and two logies later. Two logies later, a whole stack of uh, blood, sweat and tears. Uh, we've all worked very hard on that. I, I, I want to touch on that, Baz. I mean, uh, look, you know, you didn't just fall into TV. This is a great, you know, background. You guys didn't just fall into the chem- The chemistry you guys have on, on screen is genuine. Oh, my word. And 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 I and I hate to say this to you on on your own podcast, but sometimes I feel when you have a guest on your lounge, it actually detracts on the living room from how good the chemistry is between you four. I love it when you've got guests on and guys that are outside. Mm. And and I sort of touched on this before, but you guys have an amazing relationship, all four we do. of you. And, we do. and 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 I think you sort of touched. On it. it is like mum and dad and two older sons. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're the crazy kids, and you guys are kind kids. of like trying to. But it's a great blend because you're young parents too. Yeah, yeah. We're very 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 different. Uh, but we all love each other's story and we have very different personalities. Miguel and I are both alpha males. So is Chris, there's no doubt about it. I love Miguel. I, I'm not interested in cooking, but I could watch him and listen to him cook 24 hours a day. I love that passion. He yes. has the same passion for what he does as what it is. Amanda, the ultimate professional. Chris Brown, incredibly handsome, ducks of his university, smartest guy on, on earth. And fixes little pets. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what more do you want? A few boxes, that, doesn't that's he? a cocktail, but well, uh, isn't it? Yeah. What's your relationship with TV? Like, is it a love hate thing, or do you, do you enjoy it? That you know the, the the reruns and the you know the going through the the rigmarole of the the filming. 
Yes. What's the hardest shit with it? You're up early, you're home late, you're yeah. doing long time, you're away yeah. from the kids. People the don't see people don't see the work that goes no, into it, producing it, a TV you've show. You swapped the sacrifices, what yeah, you've done. It, it, it's the hardest job I've ever had. It's hard work. There's no doubt. I have uh, incredible respect for the weather girl now. Yeah. Um, you, you have no idea. We you, you watch TV and think, oh, it's easy. Anyone can do that. It's hard work. It, you've got to know what you're doing. You've got to research. You've got to be on. You've got to be. You've got to have 20% more energy than you do normally. And then you've got to face all the other problems. It's, it's a tough gig. You know, we haven't talked about the, the birth of my beautiful children, but they came. We're about to. They, on our seventh attempt of surrogacy in India, our, my beautiful twins, I'm gone again. Our beautiful twins are born on, uh, on, in uh, 2012, which was six months into the show. And, uh, and it was, it's just a gift. But uh, the twins are there. You know, you asked me, the reason I said that was because you asked me how much, I, how hard it is. Sacrifice. It's, it, it's incredible hard. But I'm going to, I'll explain something. And I, and I don't want to sound like a shelf, but I've got two of the most beautiful kids on earth. I've got a yacht in the Mediterranean and I'm a self-funded self, uh, retiree. The alternative is a pretty good alternative for me. I go and snuggle up with my kids in a bay in Europe somewhere or I work my guts out on TV. And at the moment, I'm choosing work my guts out on TV because... Because you love it. These are the journeys that we're going to talk about. I, I always say this, your life uh, is, is a sum of every day added up. And I'm putting in some good numbers at the moment. Wow. Putting in some hard yards. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. You are. Yeah. But these are the great experiences that take you on that journey. Yeah. Mate, um, from that and this, uh, I suppose, this great TV career that's blossomed, you know, and, and, and you, look, you're always going to take to it, you know, it's the competitive barrier to why I take it back now knowing that little ditty about your dad saying you're a Dubai, you're the best yep. at everything. Yep. I think that gives you the confidence to walk into TV like you did. Yep. No experience whatsoever. A no. builder from the West who made good in the East. Great experiences, great adventures. You know, we sort of talked before your brother Mick, you went down to Formula One. I mean, you do get the privileges. You do see what, I suppose, you know, sometimes the tabloids try and make it look good and, and people love the fascination of how the celebrity lifestyle is. You do live a little bit of a celebrity life. Oh, Give uh, us an insight. Yeah, I mean, yeah, an insight. It, it, it is. I, like I said, I, I still get starstruck when I sit beside Amanda and, and Chris is on the other couch. I'm yep. still starstruck by that. Uh, I'm starstruck I, by my girl's puddings. Yeah. <laughs> you would but, there, yeah, with comes <laughs> that. I mean, I had a fantastic uh, day yesterday. I was, I was on RPM um, on the sports show on Channel 2 with Matt Burke. Uh, Daryl D- Daryl Beatty, uh, Manny Burke, play for Australia for yep. the Wallabies. Daryl Beatty, uh, champion uh, motor motorbike rider. rider. Yep. I thought, you know, you can't buy this ticket. These guys are friends of mine, and and we're talking about are you okay? We're talking like just well, we are a couple of mates. Yep. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, you uh, guys are footy he heads. Uh, here he you goes. guys are footy heads, and I, I love my footy. You know that. And Channel Ten has the rugby. Yep. Uh, I've always been an NRL, NRL man. Paramount, yeah. Paramount supporter, so it's been a tough gig. Nate had about it. I need to pull the boots on, actually, this <laughs> year. <laughs> no, no, not a chance. But, um, I've come into the car park at Saunders Street there at Channel 10 a couple of months ago. Uh, Chris has arrived behind me, and uh, Matty Burke's in the car park already. He's got his sponsor way out. He's got the Q8 there, and, it's, yeah. and he's got a bunch of uh, rugby balls in the back of it. So picture this. It's Chris Brown, Matt Burke, for God's sake. Matty chucks me a long pass, long just torpedo, and I just pulled it beautifully into the chest. Always going to. And, and just flick one across to Chris. And So what I'm doing now, I'm passing the ball, as we do in front of the worksite or in front of our yard or with our kids, with Matty Burke and Chris Brown in the car park, right? These are, you know, like, it's, 
I guess you get to do that with Fletch and the boys. But to me, this is a big deal. It is a big deal. It's a big deal. So what happens is Maddie then, Maddie's alpha male from from everywhere, man. This guy's competitive still. He'd still tackle tackle oh, if yeah. you run it. No, and, and and what a good rugby player he was. What a heart, you know, incredible. But Maddie uh, spins the ball sideways and it stands up on its pin and he kicks it and it just lands straight in my chest. Baz being Baz, I said, I've got to have a go at this. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I've spun the ball and I'm – they to this day don't know this, but I'm thinking I'm going to kick it to Chris. The ball's curved and landed straight perfectly in the back of Maddie's Audi. I said, I've got to go, boys. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I thought you were going to say it took his mirror off. <laughs> no, no, it just landed. So I just played it as if I meant it. And I thought, you, you can't buy that experience. Nah. I mean, yeah, sure. I went to the Grand Prix. We were sitting in the tent. Uh, there's another great Your brother Mick. I took Mick down there. and the, You're getting the limos. You get out of the thing and everybody's taking photos. You're baz, but. I'll never get used to that, but it, uh, but y- you get comfortable with it. And it is another world. And, and the funny thing about it, when TV's over, that'll be over, and I won't be able to buy that ticket. Uh, I, won't be able to, I won't be able to do that. Before we, talk, before we bring it home here, Baz, in this amazing podcast, this twist, we could talk all day, and we'll probably have to do another one with you on <laughs> other stories. But and we're going to touch on your family, your brother, Mick, uh, you know, and you down at the, the Grand Prix. Do you see it that way? Do you, do you, uh, I think you strike me as someone that is so uh, grateful for every experience. Yes, definitely. Because you don't really, uh, I, I mean, at the greatest respect, is you, you, take don't, it or leave it. you don't take it for granted, but you don't care how long it lasts. You just enjoy it for what it is. No, every day. Is that, is that yeah, the way yeah, it is yeah, for when, you? When you're told you've got three months to live, uh, you, you realise that every day is the best day. Tomorrow is going to be the best day of my life. You're also telepathic because that was my next question. <laughs> Has that attitude been shaped by the experiences in your life? The, the knockdowns, Barry Dubois has had great success He's got some amazing stories, but I think the thing that galvanises this whole conversation, this whole podcast, mm. is you are a product of all your knockdowns, your losses, your never, failures, I, 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 setbacks, I, I, setbacks. I, I, I've never seen anything. Uh, I've never seen anything as a knockback. We, we used to live in an area about every four years that had flood. Okay. And we thought we were the luckiest kids We wouldn't on earth. know. We haven't been to the West. No, no. <laughs> but you, you, we thought we were the luckiest kids on earth. No one else gets a flood. We get a flood. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm not interested in uh, – there's a positive in any, anything if you want to take it that way. You, 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 you can see negatives. You just have the shit show of life. Yeah. yeah. That's it. Well, Baz, pretty good shit show of life when a kid from the West who grew up in Moorbank – and yeah, you could say, you know, you used to have to say you went to school with Eric Growth, I suppose, to uh, get a bit of celebrity status. <laughs> but now you can tell your own story about the Logies. You've won a Logie. Can you tell us uh, – there's a great story I know about you and the Logies. Would you please tell it? The, the, the Logies are fantastic. I mean, you're sitting at that table and uh, – you know, it's unreal to be on telly. It's fun as, but when they say your name and you're recognised by all the people that watch you, that invite us into their rooms every week, it, it's just a gift. But I, I know you guys love your footy, but picture this. Miguel, Chris and myself have got a, a, a bit of a thing we do every year. We we get down there the day before and we go to Nobu restaurant uh, in the casino. Oh, love that place. And, and you go anywhere with Miguel. He Talk knows, about craftsmen. He knows the chef. So we get treated like gods. It's unreal. And I'm not a big drinker, you know that, but I've had a couple of drinks, right? And we're walking out of the yard. Uh, we're walking out of Nobu and I hear this voice, Baz, Baz, can my missus get a photo with you? You get that a lot. Who is it? Who's asked me? The king. Wally Lewis, the <laughs> king, you, has said to me, Baz, can my missus get a photo? She loves your show. She loves you. This is the king talking to me. Wow. I'm speechless. Wow. I am 
I am speechless. And you know what? There's only one king. There's eh? only one king. I don't care. Uh, I'm with you. Yeah, There's yeah. only one king, mate. I, I love him. And I, I'm too embarrassed to ask for photos with Babood. I'm desperate for a photo with this guy. And and just his talking to me was enough. Do you know what I mean? It's not. That just killed me. But listen to this. So uh, his beautiful wife stands there while he's taking photos of me and his wife, and she's saying, He's saying she loves you and she loves your segments the best. And uh, Chris is saying, oh, you know, it's so nice to hear that you see the show. And and I, and I said to the king, um, Wally, do you get to see the show very often? And he says, no, nah, no, I, I don't get to see it very often. I, if she tapes it, I'll watch it with it. And I do enjoy the show, you know. And Miguel has got no clue. Not a single ounce of clue who the king is. And he says in his beautiful way, why don't you watch the show? And, <laughs> and he says, oh, you know, the footy. I'm, I'm doing the footy. And then he goes, the footy? The footy's shit. <laughs> <laughs> Who says to the king the footy's shit? <laughs> it was just gold. In a little Spanish accent. Yeah. The innocence. The oh, innocence is great. The, the king loved it. <laughs> oh, Baz, well, I'll tell you what, talk about great experiences. We're going to hit the final chapter of this podcast, and it's just been unbelievable. We're going to come back and talk about the thing that's most important, the thing that probably drives everything, and the thing that's uh, produced everything for you, and that is the importance of family. You're on to Kill for Boldness with Silky Bush and our special guest, Barry Dubois. Well, welcome back to Kill for Boldness, and Baz, we have... Uh, We've handled everything here today, and as I said, we could probably talk to you for hours on end about this, and uh, I probably wouldn't mind doing it at a yacht in Tunisia, but <laughs> <laughs> we're in here in the studios in Alexandria and Radio Hub Studios, but, you know, the humble beginnings, the life experiences, the life-threatening experiences, the buoyancy you get from phone calls that are just so unique about getting an opportunity on the renovators, that leads to two logies, the birth of your beautiful children we're about to touch upon. Mm. Family. Family is the biggest driver for Barry DeBuyer. I mean, you, you know, knowing you like I do, and, and I've been fortunate, you know, we've become great mates and I've known you for a while, but I've always known the importance of it for family to you and your friends. Your yeah. generosity is amazing. How uh, how much does family mean to Barry DeBuyer? Everything. It's uh, it's not even a question. They are my life. And, and I said it. I've said it. I've had an amazing life and now I have a better one. It's uh, four years ago. In June, they were born. Uh, our, our seventh attempt at surrogacy, and we were blessed with Bennett and Arabella, uh, Bennett Leo Dubois and Arabella Margaret, and um, just perfect. I was asked a question the other day, boys, um, because I'm in real estate, I've owned a lot of it. I, they asked me about my first home, yep. and I talked about that fibro place, and I said between now and then I've, had, I've bought and sold probably over a, just over $100 million of property. And I said, but none of those were homes. Uh, the home, my first home, was uh, just six months after the twins were born. Uh, it's in Bondi. And uh, it's where they'll grow up. Uh, and, um, you know, they're my, you know they're, they're my life. They're, they're just perfection in my eyes. And, uh, and I, want them, uh, I want them to grow up to be the human I wanted to be. Yeah. Uh, if I can give him that legacy, I'll, I'll be a happy man. It strikes me that that house in Bondi is really, if you could flip that coin, is a fibro in the in in the southwest. It's just got bricks, and it's it's not much different to the house you grew up in, isn't it? It's funny. I tell them a story every night. I love it. Uh, we talk about the three pigs, uh, and I say that one was a house of straw, one was a house of bri- uh, s- sticks, and one was a home like Bennett and Arabella's of bricks and mortar. Yeah, and they just love it. They love their home. And uh, from the second I saw it, uh, as I said, 
I looked at it uh, and I saw it as an old friend and, uh, and I sensed it, it. It looked back at me and smiled and we knew we were a team. And um, I knew when you're, um, when you're 52 and you've had twins and you've been told you don't have a stack of time to live but you don't believe it, you want to set something up that um, is perfect and uh, that house is perfect for us and um, my family's perfect. Baz, I mean, no one disputes that. You've got a beautiful relationship with your brother Mick. You know, you, 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 you've lost your mum and dad and you were so close to, you know, um, you know, talk to us a little bit about Mick and, and the great experience you uh, have with your brother. And, I've got a brother and sister. And, My and sister Liz. Um, uh, we're, we're incredibly close. Uh, we grew up believing that it was uh, it was family, uh, community, and, and country, uh, and they were just expansion. They, they were just expansions of each other. And so I love everyone. Uh, but but you know there, there is no closer closeness. But my friends as well. You know, um, I'll read you something. It, it, you know, it, it, it's a funny world. There's no way I can put words to this. Uh, it's just not. Uh, you can't be closer. Uh, you can't be closer, and um, you can't love anybody more. And and you can't have that much. You know, that, it's a it's a certain support that comes with you. It's to know that there's, uh, there's a guy that you think, there's, there's a, 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 you know, your family are the people you think are the greatest people on earth and, and are the best at everything, and they think the same of you. It's a, I don't know, I don't know how to put it in words. I'm not that, that articulate, but uh, they're, they're a good bunch. <laughs> I, I'm proud of them. But uh, I've got some great mates as well. What I was going to share with you, I, I was on uh, RPM the other day and I was talking about Are You OK Day? And, uh, and mate, this, this says a lot about my friends and, and, um, and I'll tell you what this bloke said. This I wanted to talk a little bit about Are You OK? And I know you want to talk about the kids, but you, you just put me in a spot why I'm so passionate about Are You OK? Day. Those couple of simple words can really change someone's life. Um, and when I posted, I, I was very lucky to, to interview Lee Holdsworth and uh, Scotty McLaughlin. Lee Holdsworth, if you if you know motor car racing, he had a shocking prank a couple of months yeah. ago, and he got he got a little depressed out of the whole thing. And the boys have rallied around him, and I I wanted to go and get their experience of that. So I posted on my Facebook page that I was going to go and um, interview these guys, and then. Uh, and then I, I put a short clip there of, uh, of Scotty and him saying mm-hmm. how, how, how tight it was. And a mate I hadn't seen uh, for a couple of months posted on my Facebook. Maybe you better read it. I can't read it. <laughs> uh, reminds me of a time when one of my best mates nearly died. I'm sure his family and friends pulled him through a, a tough time in his life. And now he's one of the best presenters and blokes in the country. That's me, of course, oh, no, and that's, that's my best mate. And that's you know? from Rod Vanderhart. Wow. Yeah, you know, like Mick and, and Mick, my brother, and, and Rod, they rallied around me and and uh, made me feel that uh, I don't know. They're just that's a close. We've all got those people. We're, we're lucky guys. Let me say, this. we're lucky because we got those guys. And this and this is why you've got to be a kid. You've got to be. You've got to. Keep your eye out for everyone. We're colleagues, yeah. everybody. Some blokes aren't as lucky as us. And, and, and Sister Liz as well. And I mean, Sister Liz huge, huge well, what, part what, of the what, female what, influence. Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, she, she, she's, she's a, uh, unbelievable. Uh, there's this great story. One more story, and, uh, and it's about family and how proud I am of them. 
You know, my sister's son, Liz, uh, my, my sister Liz's son, he, um, he, he had a bit of a troubled teenage years, as, as a lot of kids do, no doubt about that. But this is a good one for people to listen to because I've learned a lesson here. He came, she wanted him to come and work with us uh, to try and instill some of the things she was proud of, okay? So um, Josh came and worked with us, and he was a pain in the ass. I'm not going to kid you. He was, a, he was a tough one to deal with. He worked with Julian G for a while. We all, we all had a go to get him right, but he knew everything. He couldn't teach him anything. A lot of these young blokes are like this. And I've learned a lesson the last couple of years, and this was this. What happened to young Josh was he got a disease that sent him blind. And... Um, as you do, you, you, you think, friggin' hell, okay, I'm going to pigeonhole him, he's going to be hard work, it's going to be a burden, okay? And I said to Liz, listen, I'll try and get him a job at Bunnings. Not that there's anything wrong with a job at Bunnings, but I didn't shoot very high. Well, you know, Josh told us, uh, bugger that, I'll be okay, you don't worry about me. And he went, he said, oh, I want to be a personal trainer. He said, I didn't like carpentry anyway. And, uh, and, and he was right. We were trying to force him into a pigeonhole. You know, that kid went and did a course to be a personal trainer. He started training young blind people. Uh, this is all happening in five years. He started training young blind people. And uh, out of that, he, he got very passionate about it. And he start, he did, he's, now he's just completed a degree as a physiotherapist. Wow. And now he does inspirational speaking for blind people. You know, as humans, we're talking about our mates and our mates support us. You always got to be aware to, to shoot for as support people, but don't put them in pockets. Mm. Support them and, and, and let them know they can go, go as far as they can. Well, that's a lesson I'm glad I've learned because I would have had him working at Bunnings for the rest of his life, packing, packing storage in the back of the store. Yes. Whereas he's now got a degree in physiotherapy. He's blind. Yeah. He got wow. married last weekend. Wow. You know? It's a bloody good great story. Great story. That's that a, a story. You know, I, um, I don't know what got me onto that. You talk about my Liz. Well, that's well, my, about Liz that's and my family sister. And you know, sister she, she never and inspirations. Lost, she, she never lost belief. And whatever he wanted to do, it, she'd back him. And I said, you know, really? You're pouring money, good money after bad. But she was right. I was wrong. And it's not very often I admit that, but I was. You, you never want to let kids think that that's all they can be, you know? Yeah. That's something for us all to learn there. It's, it's funny, Baz. Before I hand over to Silky to ask the final two questions he always finishes our show with, and they're great questions, I'm going to joke you on this one, I think, because, uh, you know, people like us are very fortunate to share a wonderful mum and dad. The three of us in this room have those same experiences. You know, Silky's family grew up in, or, you know, in the family home, Lilyfield. You know, you're out in the southwest, and Silky's in Bondi his whole life. You've got great siblings in Mick and Liz, and, you know, we've got my brother Scott, Silky's only child. But... I always say to, to the young blokes that I coach at football and all this sort of stuff, boys, that the other thing that you need to think about in life is, you know, different experiences, but choose really well when you when you go to choose a partner or a wife. Sure. You know, and, and same with the girls. The girls have got to choose someone of great character. Your wife, Leone, just, uh, you know, a few yeah. words and how, how yeah, important. Yeah, no doubt about that. I mean, it's uh, – life's a great thing. And uh, you're riding your push bike and you're heading in the one direction. It's your push bike, though, and you're on it on your own. Every now and then you ride up beside someone. And you don't want to change the way you ride. You want to be able to ride in sync with them. And, uh, and I've ridden in sync with Leone. There's no doubt about it. I've, I've hit some speed humps. Uh, and she, she stayed solid. And I've always, I've always come back, uh, you know, to ride side by side with her. And we're not one, we're two. Oh, we're not two, we're one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's a gift to have that, uh, that life partner. There's no doubt about it. 
girls uh, that are listening should realise though that blokes do store up shit they don't need to store up, and sometimes they need. It, 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 you know, I've learned a lot about about women as well. I've learned this: they're lateral thinkers. They take on six problems at once and handle them. Blokes, we've got one thing on our mind and we concentrate 100% on that at its time. You know what I mean? Um, so we're not the same. Uh, so c- communication, again, meaningful conversations, the answer to a good relationship. There's no doubt about it. Uh, my wife's a gift. You know that. And, I do. Uh, she's a gift to me and uh, she... And she, inspiring, she, she, she pushed and pushed and uh, she never gave up. And like I said, thanks to that, never giving up. It's a result of our beautiful children. That she's an incredible mother too. And um, she's so much stricter than I am. I mean, they get whatever they like off me, but they, they've got me convinced if I eat yeah. chocolate that my teeth are going to go yellow and I have to go to the doctor. I mean, they're, they're very good. And they're, they're, but she's great. She, she, she feeds them the good food, which so many kids don't get good food these yep. days. She exercises, plenty of sunshine and, and, and healthy living, and they sleep well, and they're happy, beautiful children. Speaking of healthy living, just before I do hand to Sylvia, I did promise that before. Mate, two last quick things. Cancer Council, are you okay? You know, you're such a philanthropist. Mm. You're so involved in charities, and I think it's your passion that gets you there. I mean, we did touch on are you okay, but Cancer Council is hugely important to you. Yeah, it is. I mean, primarily for me, uh, I have a lot of support around me. There's no doubt about that. But the thing with Cancer Council and what they do, they raise a lot of money every year for the prevention of cancer. No doubt about that. But what uh, impresses upon me, and I've seen this firsthand, I work with these guys intensely, but... If you're a single mum or, or a, a young couple in a regional city mm. and you, the breadwinner struck down with cancer, so you haven't got any money and you've got to get three kids to school, Cancer Council also arrange the logistics of getting you to treatment, helping you out financially. A lot of people don't realise that. A lot of the money raised goes to those people who don't have the support that, that others in the city particularly have. So can you imagine if you're a, a single mum uh, uh, and you've got to... Get the kids to school. They've got to have a life, and and they and you've still got to get a treatment. Mm-hmm. And, you know we're Horrendous. lucky. We're mm-hmm. lucky, and yeah. and that's that's the reason I. Uh, I'm, it's a pleasure. It's a gift. One of the gifts of this thing called celebrity, if for a better word, and I hate using that word, is that we all people are great people. All people are good people, but we get to help people. Uh, we we're the one, we're the lucky ones that get to help. And, and thankfully, I can ring up Bunnings and I can ring up ANZ and they'll listen to me because I'm on telly for some reason. No, and then, and, and then, they, uh, then uh, they, they'll help out as well. So it's, it's a gift. We're talking about my wife, but the, the Cancer Council, it's, uh, it's all good stuff. Like I said, um, we all want to help out. I, I, I will say this, and, and I say this at a lot of talks, at one stage of your life, and it's touched you, I know it has, you're either going to say the words or hear the words, I've got cancer. Okay, you've heard it, uh, mm-hmm. and, and I've said it. It's, it's harder to hear it, and when you do hear it, you say, don't worry, we're going to do whatever we can to fix this. I know you said that, Bush, yeah. okay? But there's not a lot we can do. Those good people are raising money and giving it to people who can do good stuff. Yeah. It's a thing to remember. When you hear it, uh, you'll say, I'll do anything. Well, your opportunity is now. Put your hand in your pocket and buy a little badge or buy a mm. doll off them and that's going to go to supporting that lady in regional Australia or helping you cut um, cut out that cancer of, of, of our life. Everyone needs to know on that note, Buzz, even a dollar can make a difference. 100%, mate. 100%. Yep. Every dollar makes a difference. 
Baz, I've enjoyed sitting here for the last hour and a half, listening to your remarkable life. It's been enthralling. Thank so, so far. Edu- so far. Educating as well as insightful. It, it ticks all the boxes. But two questions we would like to ask our guests before we let them out the joint. Uh, for you, you, you know, you've had so many great life experiences. What's the best bit of advice you've ever been given? Oh, you heard it at the beginning of the conversation. Everything you do, you can do 10% better. Yeah. And uh, I've never made a mistake in my life. There's just a shitload of things I'm not going to do again. And if there, and, and knowing that, is there one? I'm, I'm probably repeating myself here, but was there, is there one bit of advice that you'd share with someone else, or you know maybe something you'd impart on your kids when they're a bit older that you know you'd like for them to to, to live by? Yeah, yeah. The um, I want to let my kids know there's nothing that they can't do. Uh, I want to with my kids. I want them to um, do what they love. If you, if you do what you love, you'll be good at it and um, finance money will come, come as a result of that. I, I think it's very important to spend this life, but look at you two. You've got, you love your radio gigs, you, you love entertaining. That's what you're going to end up doing, you know, and that's what keeps the balance in life. I guess if I'm going to say anything, you've got to maintain a balance in life. And if you look at your life and every part of your life as a bit of a pie graph, and you break it up equally, so there's a bit of love, there's a bit of fun, there's a bit of exercise. You know, one particular thing can't be allowed to take over the whole pie graph. If you're only working to live, uh, you've probably got your finances not quite right. If you, if you, you know, you, it's about balance. I, I would just suggest have a good balance in life and analyse that balance regularly and change the goals uh, as, as the future approaches. Well, there's some food for thought, Bush. Oh, mate, you know, we just want to thank you, Baz. I mean, look, I've had the pleasure of knowing you for 20 years and we, we can call each other mates and, and ring each other on the phone and have great conversations. And I think the insightful, informative way that you've sat there and, and told us some of these amazing stories will be not only inspiration for people, but, you know, dealing with different things, dealing with cancer, dealing with depression, you know, having these great travels, having these euphoric experiences mm. and having, you know, low points and coming through it. It's just a great inspiration. Listen, we all got amazing stories. We've all got amazing stories. Uh, don't, don't be scared of your story, though. They, you say they're low points. My day, my life today is amazing. So all that stuff was just part of it. It's just a chapter in the book. Yeah, I love it. Well, mate, you're a philanthropist, you're a TV presenter, you're a builder, <laughs> you're a sailor, great skier, hold the record for over 40s on the on the rowing machine. There's not much Barry Dubois hasn't done. Thank there's still s- a couple of chapters left, but oh. I reckon there's still a few more chapters in the book. We'll oh. have a shot at it. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you very much for spending time with Silky and I on A Cure for Baldness, Barry Dubois. Good on your voice. Thank you.